This is Competition Law with Professor Karon Beaton-Wells, exploring the challenges in competition policy, law and enforcement. This series looks at the impact of those challenges in a digital economy and on society overall, whether you're a citizen, consumer or competitor. In this episode, Karon speaks with Matt Stoller, fellow at the Open Market Institute, about the antitrust politics of big tech in the United States. You know, structurally separating a company is not a particularly extreme solution. It is a light touch rule. I mean, a company is a made up thing. Google has eight product lines with more than a billion users. They have a ton of different divisions. Each of those is just a legal entity or could be a legal entity. And you just file some paperwork and it's now a different company. Wall Street does this all the time. Here's Karan Beaton-Wells. Unless you've been hiding under a rock somewhere, you've probably noticed the US appears to be waking up from its antitrust slumber on big tech. There's rumors of investigations into at least two of the big four. There's been an announcement that the House Judiciary Committee is going to hold a top-to-bottom review into whether there's enough competition amongst the giant platforms. And nothing short of breaking them up is now firmly implanted in the platforms of a number of Democrat presidential candidates. So what's the politics behind all this? In this episode, to help answer that question, I turn to Matt Stoller, fellow at the Open Markets Institute. That's a think tank that's close to the action on Capitol Hill and to which many attribute the political about-face on antitrust. As you're about to hear, the mission of Open Markets is much more ambitious than mounting a mere antitrust revolution. For Matt and his colleagues, there's nothing less than democracy at stake. Right. So the Open Markets Institute, we are a group of journalists, uh, lawyers, and writers who think about the problem of concentrations of private power in our political economy. And our goal is to restore democracy, both politically and in the commercial sector. And so what we seek to achieve is, I guess, what Louis Brandeis would have called industrial liberty, which is to say, you know, most people think about democracy as kind of you vote for your leaders and then they make decisions and people can ask those leaders for things. But we think of democracy much more expansively. So democracy is about all of that time that you spend at work or at your business. And democracy in that context means whether you have power, whether you have choices, whether you have a sense of control over your life, over your community, over your family life. And that's very much a question of how our markets are set up. So our markets for your labor, our markets for your goods and services, our markets for information, for food, for medicine, and so on and so forth. And so what we do is we think about market structure and its relationship to political power. So for the OMI, really, you can't separate economic and political power, private and public power, whereas that's a position that you'd be well aware, many in the antitrust industry, if I can put it that way, push back quite hard on? Right. So the antitrust club. So Adam Smith, the 1770s, people sometimes call him the first economist, but he did political economy. Actually, he did philosophy. And I think that for most of the 19th century, there was an understanding that what we would consider economics was actually 
a political economy. And I think only in the 1920s was there an attempt to say, oh, actually, this isn't a political economy. This is a science. We have numbers and we have scientists in charge, and it's this very rational thing, and we call it economics. And the rabble, the sort of the little people, the citizens, you know, they shouldn't muck around with the scientists. That sort of started to emerge in the 1920s. And then it really came into antitrust and to the way that we do market structure in the late 1970s. And the current group of incestuous antitrust lawyers and economists and thinkers, they really have internalized this notion that you should listen to the scientific truth about efficiency. And our view is, look, this is about democracy. And democracy is the system of how we do politics to maximize liberty. And that's fundamentally not something that you should give to a small group of people who think of themselves as a technocratic elite. So you'd say this is a field that's become too technocratic and moved away from being democratic. And I hasten to say, of course, there are many also on your side in that respect. But it's this divergence or division of opinions in the area that is absolutely fascinating to observe. And of course, it's all crystallizing around what we call big tech. So we're going to talk a bit about the politics of big tech, Matt, which I know is one of your specialties. Just looking at recent headlines in the US press from the Washington Post, big tech's antitrust problems just beginning. New York Times, antitrust troubles snowball for tech giants as the lawmakers join in. Now, if those headlines are any guide Antitrust may have languished as a policy backwater for some time, but now there's a resurgence of political interest in it in the U.S. What accounts for that change in your view? I don't think it's just the U.S. I think it's globally, I think for a couple of reasons. But the main one is monopolization. The question of monopoly really has been a part of the American tradition since the 1770s. Adam Smith, he hated monopolies because he was looking at the East India Company and he was looking at trading companies that were part of empires. And so empires were in many ways designed to structure trading relationships. A lot of what he was talking about, free trade and open markets, was actually about undermining the ability of aristocratic systems to dominate. America was born in 1776 and the Wealth of Nations comes out in 1776. So these are both philosophies of the Enlightenment. In the American tradition, anti-monopoly sentiment was a very important part of how we thought about political economy. 19th century markets were largely local, but they were highly regulated. And then when you started to see the emergence of more national institutions like the telegraph or the railroad, you saw almost immediately regulatory structures to try to constrain their power. And then the antitrust law, the Sherman Act was passed in 1890, but it was part of a whole series of state laws and a common law tradition. And then you bring that forward, and that really lasted until the late 1970s. So this sense that we needed to protect ourselves from aristocracies in the form of actual aristocracies or royalty, but also in the form of banking power or commercial power vested in monopolies, that lasted until the late 1970s. And then what you saw was an intellectual revolution, very sophisticated movement of the law and economics movement. That was centered at the University of Chicago, but of course, it was part of a global rise of neoliberalism. So debate in the 1980s, at least in America, and I think worldwide, but I know America best, were centered on whether you should tax or redistribute more so the shape of welfare states. But how banks and corporations were structured was not really part of politics. It was maybe seen as a problem, but not a political 
problem. So politics shrank. It shrank dramatically. I mean, it really was that profound and intellectual revolution. And so you saw roll-ups of power in American political economy in the media sector, in the retail area, the rise of chain stores. You saw it in the defense industrial base. You saw it in the healthcare sector. That was associated with Reagan. But when Bill Clinton took over, he doubled down on what Reagan did, and he took it global. So the globalization and the rise of big technology, the roll-up of the software industry, and then What we saw in the 2000s was the emergence of Google, Amazon, and Facebook, these giant global institutions that use digital technology, but were layered onto this political revolution that happened in the late 1970s. And really, big tech is the first set of businesses that were born in this globalized, pro-monopoly legal framework. And so now they're the pace setters in the economy globally, and everybody is trying to mimic what they're doing. So you're seeing this incredible concentration of power. And now... Because of the financial crisis, and I'm sorry, this is kind of a long narrative, but this will answer your question. Because of the financial crisis, all of a sudden, this kind of technocratic worldview, this let the scientists handle things, this stuff doesn't have anything to do with you, Mr. Politician or Mr. Citizen, all of that fell apart. And all of a sudden, people were like, hey, wait a second, these things that we think of as kind of technocratic neutral institution like banks are actually very political. And a financial crisis is a political crisis. And so the libertarian globalized worldview fell apart. And then you saw this roll up of power in the tech industry after the financial crisis. I mean, it started before, but it kind of really accelerated after the financial crisis. But people still were like, ah, everything's fine. Obama put things back together. We're still making progress. And then first you saw Brexit and then you saw Trump. And as it turns out, a lot of really bad stuff was happening in the American political economy and I think globally because of this roll-up of unaccountable power. It's everything from lifespans are declining because of addiction and diseases of despair in the U.S. to addiction on social media to just incredible amounts of stress and inequality, much lower productivity growth. As it turns out, when you roll up power in unaccountable ways, the people that have that power tend to use it to solve problems that they experience and that their friends experience, but they don't actually solve things that most people care about. And that's why we have decentralized power in the political economy. And when you don't, you get a very, very unhappy population. And you're seeing this globally because these big tech platforms are organized globally. They're basically everywhere but China. So one can understand how post the GFC, big banking has come under fire. But Why is it that these tech companies that have been at the vanguard of innovation for America gone from a source of national pride to what seems like almost public pariah status now? Have there been particular events that you would say have triggered this shift in perception? So there was a sense that these guys were creating magic. A lot of the stuff they were doing was just indistinguishable from magic, and it was incredibly cool. From a progressive democratic standpoint, It was like, oh, okay, this is kind of the validation of all of the things that we care about, the deregulation, allowing the private sector to unleash its creative energies. And you get these big, powerful, progressive corporations that are friendly to gay people and that magic. And how wonderful is that? And also, they're all Democrats, so they're going to help Democrats continue to stay in office. And so that was kind of the viewpoint of, I think, a lot of Democratic establishment people. But that was sort of the general sense, like a sense that things were okay and things were progressing. And then Trump won. And Eric Schmidt, CEO of Google, was actually photographed wearing a 
staff badge at a Hillary Clinton, I think at the Democratic National Convention. So a Hillary staffer, right? That's the CEO of Google. That's how connected the political philosophy was. So Trump wins. And all of a sudden, it turns out these guys are not magicians. What they do is they sell marketing services. That's what they do. They're ad companies. And there's nothing inherently progressive about an ad company or a marketing company. And they sold those services to everyone. And they tried to get Democrats elected, but it didn't work. I'm not saying Google tried institutionally. I'm saying like the Google people, some of them came over to the Clinton campaign and they worked on it and they thought, oh, we know how this stuff works. And it didn't work. It turns out that marketing is marketing. I mean, that's all it is. It's not magic. So that was the first big blow. These companies lost a lot of prestige at that moment. And then the Cambridge Analytica stuff happened with Facebook. So then people were like, hey, wait a second. Not only are these not progressive institutions, these are actually manipulation machines that can be rented out by bad actors. And so that was kind of part of waking up. And then open markets, we were part of New America. This is sort of an insidery story, but it had a big impact across a lot of journalists and antitrust policy people. So we praised Margaret Vestager for issuing a fine against Google in 2017. This is the shopping search case. Yeah, the shopping search case, right? It was kind of like someone's doing something. That's kind of neat. So we sent out a press release saying, oh, good for her. And then Google, which gave money to New America, Eric Schmidt communicated with the head of New America and had all of us tossed out. We were all fired from New America. It was a very sort of ugly split. And we set up our own think tank. But this was a moment when all of a sudden, a whole bunch of people in policymaking circles all over the world were like, wait a second, big data companies are just, they're big tobacco. They do the same thing that any big company would do, which is they spend a lot of money on politics to silence people and to get the policies that they want. And so that was a really significant shift. It is clear that shines come off. The magic's gone poof. <laughs> yeah, and I think what's happened since then is just you've seen more and more problems with Facebook and with Google and with Amazon. And there's been a kind of a revolution, intellectual revolution in how we think about political economic power as a result of the financial crisis, Trump winning kind of some of our organizing, and then the emergence of big tech. And clearly the Democrats are listening to some of that intellectual agitation about the political economy of antitrust. And we're going to talk about the Democrats in a minute. But can we start with the Republicans? Because you've said that the tech clash in Washington is bipartisan. If there's one thing the left and right can agree on, it's the need for an overhaul of antitrust with particularly big tech in mind. Let me just start by playing you something recently from Trump. Well, there's something going on, Joe. And I will tell you this, the European Union, which is a fantastic group of negotiators, uh, they actually... Uh, very, very prominent person who you know well, who's in your show a lot, said the person at the European Union that is in charge of taxation hates the United States more than any person anywhere in the world. And I really believe that's true. Every week you see them going after Facebook and Apple and uh, all of these companies these, that are, you know, they're great companies, but there's something going on. But I will say the European Union is suing them all the time. We're going to maybe look at it differently. We have a great attorney general. So, Matt, there's a bit to unpack there. If you listen to the whole excerpt, Trump is on the one hand critical for the attack as he sees it on the best of US tech by the EU, but then he goes on to suggest that the US should 
be following suit because there's massive potential revenue gain here from large fines. I mean, can you make sense of that for us? There seems a bit of a contradiction there. I don't know. I mean, I could talk about you know, Trump. Do we really want to go there? Is there an antitrust, a coherent antitrust platform beyond Trump and the broader Republican movement? No, but there are a bunch of different factions. So there's a merger of these two giant defense contractors, Raytheon and United Technologies. And Trump's like, he kind of has this intuitive feel for it because he's like, I don't know if we should let them merge. I mean, wouldn't that reduce competition? I mean, the airplanes we buy from them are expensive, and now we'll have like one less entity to buy from. And it's like, yeah, that's actually right. That's (laughs) That's actually true. (laughs) At the same time, you get that incoherent gibberish. And so on the Republican Party, you've got very deferential, Macon Del Rahim, very deferential to power. At the FTC, Joe Simon, similarly, super deferential to power. But then at a state level, you have a lot of anger from state Republicans. In Congress, you actually have some Republicans who are very favorable to big tech, but a whole bunch of them who are not. But people on the Democratic side simply don't believe it. But I've actually dealt with Republicans and conservatives for a long time on policy, and they're often engaged. But in terms of this anti-monopoly work, there is a real good faith effort to learn how corporate concentration is really working, to learn about big tech, to try to start to do some things that might really address this concentration of power. I'm very surprised, but it is real. It is there. It's happening at every level. And it probably will get to the Trump administration at some point. Okay. So the Democrats do certainly have the jump on this. But as you said, there's factions and we can't go past Elizabeth Warren when we talk about that. Keep in mind, the Obama administration was incredibly reticent on antitrust. So as bad as the Trump administration is, they're basically just continuing what the Obama administration did. So you can't look at the Democrats and say, oh, well, because Elizabeth Warren has been saying some things on monopoly, they're the party that doesn't like monopolies. They're transforming into that, but they're coming from a very pro-concentration framework. And in many ways, the Democrats are almost more reluctant to acknowledge how bad they've been than the Republicans. Yeah, sure. Of course, you wrote that piece back in 2016 saying that Democrats have killed their populist soul, but there is a shift going on here. Does the Democratic, or at least those in the Democratic Party that are engaged in this shift, does it tie in with a broader economic policy platform directed at income and wealth inequality? What's the broader economic basis for the concern about concentration? Well, I think that's a good way to think about it. And I would actually reverse it a little bit. I'd say, I think a lot of what they're doing on economic questions where they're talking about tax policy or they need for more spending on housing, or that actually fits into the framework that I was talking about with regards to anti-monopolism, which is to say we need a commercial sector that supports democracy. There needs to be public investment. There needs to be a whole series of ways to structure markets. There need to be safety nets. There's a whole bunch of stuff you need to have a democracy. And first and foremost is you need a government that is dedicated to protecting people from concentrations of power, either domestically or abroad. And I think that is where the Democrats are moving. You're seeing multiple Democratic candidates stressing the importance of freedom, how economic questions are tied to freedom. Traditionally, That's what you would have heard from Republicans in the last couple of decades. That's what you would have heard from Democrats prior to the 1970s. 
that Jeffersonian Enlightenment rhetoric, it's returning to the Democratic Party, it's becoming the core of how we talk about justice. It's not the core yet, but it's it's returning to that to that center. But if this is, as you say, about getting back democracy in the American way, is that really a vote winner? I mean, I have heard others say that the politics of this is really shoring up democratic credibility with the blue-collar vote and winning back Trump's silent majority by cracking down on big business. You know, I'm not going to make an argument about political strategy. I just think that you should run on what you believe in. And I think Democrats have a huge credibility problem because Democrats have done a very bad job for a long time. So they don't have a lot of credibility. And you can say, I'm going to do all this nice stuff, but it doesn't really matter if the last couple of times you said, I'm going to do this nice stuff and you didn't, like you've lost your credibility. So Democrats might be able to run on different messages and they might work or they might not. But the question isn't how you win. I mean, that's part of the issue. The question is how you govern afterwards, because you can win on lots of different messaging, but you can only win re-election if you actually govern and improve people's lives. I mean, everybody all around the world knows it. People keep losing on the center left and the center right because they're not improving people's lives. I mean, it's crazy. The voters keep throwing the bums out. And it's because nobody is actually improving people's lives because they've been ignoring monopolies and concentrations of power. They haven't touched them. But speaking of credibility, Matt, isn't there some hypocrisy here on the part of the Democrats, on the one hand, launching this concerted attack on big tech, at least some of them, but on the other hand, they're out there actively soliciting Silicon Valley financial support for their campaigns? Well, I think you'd have to name specific Democrats to say that. For you know Bernie and Warren, no, because they're not soliciting the money. And I think for a bunch of the others, I mean, tech money is not one thing. So what you're seeing is that tech money from someone like Sheryl Sandberg is different from tech money from some random engineer at Facebook. It's just like they want to help someone that they like, and so they do that. So you see a difference between the workers and the executives at an elite level. And then there are also a lot of companies in Silicon Valley that want to break up Facebook and Google because they think they're too powerful. So there are splits in the valley. But your broad question is right. So someone like Cory Booker or Kamala Harris or Pete Buttigieg, they're getting a bunch of money from Wall Street. They're getting a bunch of money from Silicon Valley oligarchs. And then they say these silly, fake arguments, which are designed to trick voters into thinking that they're going to be tough. So, oh, yeah, should we break up Facebook? Oh, yeah, yeah, we should take a real close look at that. This kind of nonsense that you hear from politicians that are trained, if you don't want to answer the question, express a sense of urgency. Say you should take a hard look. These are phrases that they use to avoid taking on power. So in that sense, yeah, they're basically lying without actually saying an explicit mistruth. And then they're taking money on the other side. So yeah, I think that that's right. But uh, not everybody's like that. And, you know, they're all being pushed by this revolution of thinking and political economy and, and changing attitudes of voters. Well, if there is one who's gone beyond the soundbite to engage with the substance somewhat, it is, as you've mentioned, Elizabeth Warren. So just for the benefit of our listeners, here's something she said recently on the topic of big tech. To have more competition in the marketplace and to level the playing field a little bit for small businesses and entrepreneurs and startups, what we've got to do is take those platforms. You know how you order on Amazon or you do a search on Google? and break them off from the additional businesses that they're running. And those additional businesses are where they're getting a comparative advantage 
on their um, information because of the information they get from their platforms. So, Matt, essentially this is a structural separation proposal. She'd have Amazon's marketplace spun off from Amazon Basics and Google's ad exchange from Google Search. Let's explore this. Firstly, let me ask you, is breakup something that the Open Market Institute supports? Yes. And on what grounds? Well, I mean, the same grounds we've talked about. You need to block concentration of power because concentrations of power lead to domination of markets and of businesses and fundamentally of citizens. And we want to promote competition, but more importantly, we want to promote democracy and liberty. But don't you think there's some irony here that the most ardent free market system in the world is proposing what many would say is the most draconian solution to competition problems? You know, structurally separating a company is not a particularly extreme solution. It is a light touch rule. I mean, a company is a made up thing. Google has eight product lines with more than a billion users. They have a ton of different divisions. Each of those is just a legal entity or could be a legal entity. And you just file some paperwork and it's now a different company. Wall Street does this all the time. If you do that, you can, in many cases, avoid these really annoying, intrusive, micromanaging type of rules that is really kind of regulation. And so there's this silly framework where people are like, oh, I don't want to break these guys up because that would be extreme. But at the same time, we can't do nothing. So let's do this intermediate step where we'll regulate them. And then regulation requires this massive intrusive bureaucracy, both on the side of the big company and on the side of the government, which ends up actually creating a massive concentration of power in and of itself and undermining the ability of small players to enter. So it's this ridiculous sense that Let's just not have markets and replace them with bureaucrats who try to recreate some of the benefits that markets bring. What Warren is doing is much simpler. She's just saying, look, let's break up these companies and we'll put some rules in place that are simple, that keep them siloed so that you can't create an artificial competitive advantage. And then you can have competition do the regulation instead of a bunch of bureaucrats who don't necessarily know what's going on in the market. People can discipline each other by outcompeting each other. Well, let's get into the nuts and bolts of this, because there is, I'm sure you'll acknowledge, active opposition to structural remedies amongst the technocracy that you've referred to. I mean, their starting point would be that we're not talking about monopolies here. I've got a feeling I know what you're going to say about that. But the argument goes, well, look, at least in the US, Google's got competitors in Bing and Yahoo, DuckDuckGo and so on in online search, and Facebook's got competitors in more specialized networking like LinkedIn, Pinterest, and Snapchat. And Amazon's got only 4% in retail if you take offline retail into account. I'm assuming you're going to push back hard on that and say, well, let's be real, these are near monopolies at least. That's very much a consumer kind of oriented view, right? So if you look at Amazon, you say, oh, they've only got 4% of the retail market. So you can buy from lots of different places, right? But that's looking at it as a consumer. What if you're selling something and you're trying to sell online? You basically have to go through Amazon. And depending on what you're selling, you actually may only be able to go through Amazon. So for example, I just wrote a book. It's on Amazon, right? It'll be on Amazon. It's called Goliath, The 100-Year War Between Monopoly Power and Democracy. And it's fun. It's a fun book. There's my pitch. But I basically have to sell it through Amazon to sell the print version. But then also, there's ebooks. A lot of people like to read ebooks. Well, Amazon has a much more dominant share of the ebook market than it does of regular book distribution. 
but they basically have a monopoly for audiobooks. Audible is owned by Amazon. As an author, I am very constrained in how I can get my ideas to market. And that's a problem if you care about both my commercial rights, but also whether we want a society where people can get lots of diverse ideas to market without an intermediary telling them what they can or can't get to market. And you've got to look at that if you're a newspaper. Can you get your content to market without Google or Facebook? And the answer is, it's very, very hard. So you might be able to use Snapchat if you're a user and you're like, I don't feel like communicating on Facebook, although it is very hard to move all your friends and family over, but let's just say that you could. But if you're a newspaper or you're a business and you're trying to communicate with your customers, you don't have a choice. You have to go and communicate with them on Facebook and people are going to find you on Google and they're going to find you on Google Maps. In that sense, they have enormous market power over producers. Whether we talk about consumers or business users, say digital advertisers or app developers or publishers, what about the argument that these big four or frightful five, whoever you want to include, are vigorously competing against each other, whether it's Amazon and Google and Facebook in relation to advertising dollars or Apple and Google in relation to smartphones? The dynamic in voice is particularly interesting in the way in which they're all trying to get ahead of each other on that. Is that type of giant competition not enough to protect business users as well as consumers? Well, they both compete and collude. So I'll give you two examples. So one of the Facebook scandals is that they were sharing data with large companies, and this included telecom companies, but also included companies like Amazon. And there was essentially a cartel of giant companies that got access to Facebook data, very similar to how the railroads and the oil companies were colluding in the steel companies in the late 19th century, kind of an aristocracy of businesses running things. And you see that today with the announcement of Facebook's global currency, a corporate council of people that are going to run their global currency, almost explicit about it. And the other example would be Apple and Google might kind of pretend to compete over the smartphone market. I think there's a good argument that they do. But Google also pays Apple roughly $10 billion a year so that Google search can be the default in Safari. So Apple's market power over the iOS smartphone market also helps Google because Google's willing to pay for it. And that excludes other potential search engines from distributing their product. So you see collusion and you see some competition, but in many ways, it's like Godzilla versus Mothra fighting each other and underneath crushing all of the potential little players that might come in and create new industries. Coming back to the breakup proposal, Matt, and consumers, there are some concerns that if we break them up, consumers are going to be worse off. They're going to be paying higher prices. Some people said this after the European Commission came down against Android. Aren't high prices a real prospect and a hard sell for voters? It's a really irritating argument. It's probably not true. The world was fine in 2006, right? It's not like we're going to go back to 2006, but it irritates me that these companies associate their particular business model with the only possible future. I mean, in a lot of ways, these are corrupt business models. I mean, Apple isn't really. Apple sells overpriced electronics. It's pretty honest. You're going to pay too much for a phone. They're sexy, aren't they? Yeah, well, they were. <laughs> you believe Scott Galloway? You need to have an iPhone if you're going to be sexy. I guess so. Sex sells. Right. <laughs> but let's think about what a price is. 
a price is not just the amount of money you're paying. It's also the quality of the product. And I haven't logged into Facebook for a while. And I just started logging in because I wanted to sort of plug a couple of things. And man, it is a terrible product now. They have spent all of their time trying to improve the advertising back end. And they're surveilling me and it's kind of slow and the user interface is bad. Have they raised the price of the product? Not in monetary terms, but in actual terms, absolutely. And like YouTube, I didn't ask for YouTube to recommend videos so that I waste my whole Thursday night because I decide to watch one video and they keep recommending things that are interesting to me. I didn't necessarily want that, but they gave it to me because it's in their interest, because it's a corrupted business model. They're not charging me up front. They're taking my time and selling the ads. That's a worse quality product that I'm getting. So if you broke these companies up and you structured the markets so that there was open competition and you put public rules of the road so that they weren't engaged in pervasive surveillance, you would see better quality products, lower prices, more innovation. I don't think there's any question of that. And I guess the last point I'll make is part of the cost of a lot of the products that we use, these zero price tools, is that the whole free press all over the world is dying. And I think that there is a real cost there that may not come out of my bank account immediately, but is nonetheless important to me. And I think we can overlook that cost, but it's real. Well, you mentioned innovation there. And of course, the other argument the tech companies would make against breakup is that their spend on R&D outstrips almost anything else previously seen. And it's moonshot type of innovation that's going to bring us driverless cars and make us live forever and so on. They would argue that that kind of spend can only be done by companies of their size and it yields tremendous benefits to society. You don't share that concern. We're going to lose that innovation if we break these companies up and diminish their financial resources? No, I don't. I think it's kind of a joke. I mean, these are not innovative companies. These are financial conglomerates that are holding back innovation. I mean, they pretend to be doing all of this really impressive stuff, but the academics that I've talked to who are not on their payroll, and many of them are, are like, look, they're not doing basic research, pointed Bell Labs. They were doing real basic research, and that was effectively a government facility, but they were doing basic research. The people at these R&D facilities are trying to make advertising slightly more relevant. It's not super useful stuff. You can see it. The products have not improved very much. And what these guys are doing is they're trying to control innovation so that you don't deploy technology that undermines their business model. So if you break these guys up, what you'll see is a lot more innovation and the R&D spending will probably go up because they will have to compete over actually improving products. It's what you saw in the 50s and 60s when there were a whole bunch of antitrust suits against big companies. Is It turns out they had to spend more to stay ahead and they actually had to innovate. Yeah. And part of the push also for breaking up is, of course, the privacy concern that these companies are hoovering up massive amounts of personal data. But do you think the solution to privacy is going to lie in splitting them up? Isn't it possible that our personal data will be less safe with smaller, poorer, less well-capitalized companies? Well, so I think of privacy as a frame is confusing because people don't want to be tracked, but it's not that they think that Google is looking in on their window and that's what they don't like. And there's sort of a creepiness vibe. But what they don't like is they don't like being manipulated. And they don't like being controlled. They don't want to have the prices that they pay for things be different than their neighbor's price because Facebook knows they might be willing to pay more or might have more money or might be more price sensitive or whatever. And I think that's a market structure question. 
and data is an important component of that. I don't like calling it privacy. I think privacy is a bad frame. Going back to what we were talking about almost initially, data and privacy and antitrust are all kind of parts of the same problem, which is the problem of monopoly and the problem of how do we want to structure a society where we can be free as self-governing peoples. And some of that's going to involve putting rules on who can use data and for what purposes that they can use data. And I think there's a strong arguments for that. But a lot of those rules are going to be targeted towards making sure that people are not using data to develop concentrations of power. I want to just ask you a bit more about antitrust if we go away from breakup, but just look at enforcing the law against conduct. Can you explain something that looks rather bewildering to the rest of the world? And that's this proposed division of responsibilities or targets between the DOJ and FTC. I mean, how do they come up with this? One gets Apple and Google and the other gets Amazon and Facebook. Doesn't that make for analytical inefficiency at best and probably decisional inconsistency at worst? I don't think so. I think it's fine. The American system, we have multiple enforcement agencies at federal level, and then we have a whole bunch of enforcement agencies at state levels. And then we also, we have private rights of action. You can actually, as a private attorney, bring a suit against someone else for an antitrust violation. That's another layer of potential enforcement. And so the American system is based on redundancy and separation of powers. That often seems inefficient, and it may be inefficient. But, you know, there is a reason we have two kidneys. In case one fails. Yeah, in case if one fails, redundancy, resiliency, efficiency are sometimes at odds with one another. And I got to say, with the, the federal enforcers being silent, we have state enforcers and we have private attorneys that can pick up the slack. And I'll tell you, in Europe, you might have Vestigere, but if she's not the next competition authority, and I don't think she will be, if the next person is like, eh, you know what, I feel like napping for a few years you ain't got no competition enforcement. So that's a problem. Yeah, although you've got the national competition authorities and Germany's not been sitting on its hands. You win. (laughs) I got one in there. So we'll just wind up, as you've outlined it, after almost no action for some years, suddenly big tech is facing guns on all sides in the US. How are the big tech companies responding to this political pressure? Are they going to meekly back down? No, they're not going to back down. What is Mark Zuckerberg's response? I guess we'll create our own global currency. That's crazy. They're megalomaniacs, and they don't understand that they're not sovereign entities. So they're just going to keep taking and expanding their power until the government steps in and stops them, or other governments do, or do it jointly. We know, of course, they're spending a huge amount of money lobbying and, as you said, hiring people from previous political administrations. So it looks like Goliath versus Goliath type of battle shaping up here. Matt, where's it all going to end? Will we find some clues in your book? Well, yeah. I mean, my book will tell you how we did it before. It starts in 1910 with Teddy Roosevelt giving speech, but then it moves through the 20th century. And in the 1920s, 30s, you had this burgeoning industrial power that came out of the late 19th century. And how do you channel this power politically? And some societies concentrated it in the form of communism, and some of them concentrated it in the form of different types of fascism. And then there were countries, I mean, the U.S. happened to find a way in the New Deal to decentralize private power in this liberal democratic order. And then World War II was this 
conflict among those systems and the liberal democratic one generally won, although communism kept a hold. So, you know, now we have similar questions If we have this incredible concentrations of power. We have this new incredible digital technology, which is doing things to our societies that we don't know how to deal with, that our cultures haven't caught up with. What are we going to do with it? And you see a lot of the same instincts. Some people like Macron or Merkel are like, we need to roll back antitrust laws and we need to regulate this and have global speech police so that we can make sure that the rabble don't do bad things. And some people are like, let's break them up and let liberty flow. And that's like Elizabeth Warren. So you see global autocrats taking advantage of this dynamic. And you see a resurgent Chinese Communist Party. And I know people don't think that China is communist, but Xi Jinping believes in communism and they are cracking down on the private sector. So this is increasingly becoming ideological questions that we're going to answer through the ballot box and through other means of doing politics and hopefully not the world war, but that's how we're going to answer it. at least, that was a timely reminder that it sometimes pays to step back from talking about multi-sided markets and network externalities and grapple with the deeper, philosophical, ideological dimensions of the big tech debate. It makes it obvious why, in some circles at least, in some countries, big tech is a topic that inspires so much passion. Oh, and so much divergence of opinion too. Now, Matt's promised it's a fun read, so if your appetite for US antitrust politics has been whetted, I do suggest you dip into his book, Goliath, The Hundred-Year War Between Monopoly Power and Democracy. It's out in October, and you'll find it, no doubt, on your favourite and even on your not-so-favourite platform. Next, on Competition Law, we do return to some of the technicalities, and we're joined by Dr. Paolo Bucciarossi, Director of the Economics Consultancy, LEAR, discussing some of the fascinating findings in its recent report on ex-post assessment of digital merger decisions. Until then, you'll find links to the Open Markets Institute website and Matt's book in the show notes. And of course, all our other episodes and links at competitionlawlore.com. Competition Law was produced by written and recorded.com. And I'm Karan Beaton Wells. See you next time. Mm-hmm.